In the heart of Ephesus, a letter unfolds, bearing a message from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul shared with us that life can feel overwhelming. Moments of despair will creep in and make us question our worth. Yet, amidst these struggles, our God chose us. He doesn't leave us hanging, but actively shares in our experiences. Our God, who sees our imperfections, is always by our side, whispering, I love you. God leads us on a transformative journey from hopelessness into a profound sense of purpose. Through each aspect of our lives, God proves to us that he is immeasurably more. Great to see a Purpose Church and Happy New Year. What an amazing year of ministry 2023 was. And so we look forward to what God is going to do immeasurably more in 2024. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your flexibility in opening our campus last Sunday uh, to Victory Outreach uh, so that they could hold their services in our gym uh, after their church uh, burned down uh, three weeks ago. And you can see uh, the aftermath of that there. And now they're meeting on our uh, campus. And thank you so much for your flexibility in, in seeing that happen. Uh, another great thing that's just happened recently is God used you to build this church uh, and community center in Malawi uh, last year. And here's a picture of their dedication two months ago in November of the church, the community center, that you, Purpose Church, God used you uh, to build uh, for outreach in that part of the world. And finally, I just wanted to thank you for how God used you to grow our church in, in the past year uh, through inviting people, praying for people, le leading people to Christ, uh, serving, giving, all that you did. Um, our church grew by 28% this past year and by 47% last month uh, compared to December of last year. So 47% growth in the month of December from the previous December, 28% uh, over the entire year, year to year. And so God is on the move, but immeasurably more in 2024 is what we're looking to see God do. And I praise God for what he's done. I thank you for how he has used you. And now we look forward to this next year. So it is so appropriate that the title of our first series in 2024 is Immeasurably More, a study of the book of Ephesians. In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. The title for today's study is The God Who Hikes Up the Hill. Now, that title is not going to mean anything uh, to you until the very end of the sermon. The God Who Hikes Up the Hill. Uh, today, as we launch this series, we're going to study the historical and cultural background. We're going to kind of set the stage for the book of Ephesians, uh, setting the historical and cultural background uh, for this book. Uh, the background for Ephesians, first of all, 
its content. A letter of encouragement portraying uh, Christ bringing Jew and Gentile, a Jew and non-Jew together into the one people of God as his ultimate triumph and glory. Uh, the author is the Apostle Paul. The date is 61 or 62 AD, probably written uh, from Rome uh, to Ephesus. Uh, the recipients, uh, perhaps a circular letter to many churches in the province of Asia Minor, uh, of which Ephesus is the, the capital. The occasion uh, for the letter is Tychicus, who is carrying this letter, is also carrying two letters to Colossae, uh, the book of Colossians and Philemon. Now think about that for a moment. Can we go back to that just for a second? Tychicus. Uh, people name their sons Paul, but they do not name their sons Tychicus. But behind every great Paul, there is a great Tychicus. And this is a man in the Bible It's mentioned several times in extremely important roles. But, but he's never, never noticed, not paid much attention to, kind of a minor man who mattered in the background behind Paul's ministry. And I praise God for the Tychicuses of, of Purpose Church. Uh, you know who you are. And we praise God for you, those serving in the nursery right now, those in children's ministry right now, those on our welcome team uh, right now, those uh, doing security right now, our Tychicuses. Now think about his responsibility for a moment. He's carrying three letters of the Bible, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. What if he lost those? Um, when I was just in India with uh, Pastor Eric and Pastor Sean, and uh, I would carry my passport with me all the time. And I, I know this is a bit of OCD, but I would literally check in my pocket to see that my passport was there. I'm serious. About every couple minutes, I think, for the 10 days that, that we were there. I just always, it's my passport. Is my passport there. You imagine if you were carrying um, three of the 27 books of the New Testament. My goodness, I'd be terrified checking, did I lose them, did I lose them, did I lose them, did I lose them? Praise God for the faithfulness of Tychicus who carried the letters of Paul to the Colossians, Ephesians, and to uh, Philemon. Uh, we, we praise God for him and for the Tychicuses in our church, in our life with the Lord uh, as well. Okay, now we can move on. The emphasis for the book. The cosmic scope of the work of Christ, Christ's reconciliation of Jew and Gentile through the cross, Christ's supremacy over the powers of this dark world for the sake of the church, Christian behavior that reflects the unity of, of the Spirit. Now, Ephesus was in Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And so Asia Minor looked like this, and here we have uh, Ephesus is where it would be located, but again, that's in what is today the country of Turkey. Now, Ephesus was in a very strategic location. Ephesus is where European culture in the West collided with Asian culture in the East. Uh, Ephesus is where the goddess of the East meets the goddess of the West. Uh, let's first meet the goddess of the East. Um, her name here, C-Y-B-E-L-E, um, is, is pronounced Kibbola. So Kibbola, she's also known as the Hittite uh, mother goddess. 
Uh, she was called the mother of the gods, or literally in the Greek, her name means Big Mama. Big Mama. Kibbola, Big Mama. The Hittite mother goddess, the mother of the gods, literally in the Greek language, Big Mama. Now, idol worship then, and even somewhat now, is not just bowing down to an idol. It is fully immersed in the satanic, in the occult, with many gruesome practices um, associated with it, particularly in antiquity. Uh, to be initiated into the cult of Kibbeleh, uh, you would go through a tunnel with a metal grate overhead. And I've, and I've seen these in this part of the world from antiquity where you can see the tunnel and you can see the grate that they had over the head uh, as you would walk through this tunnel. And to initiate you into the satanic cult of Kibbeleh, they would put a bull over the grate and then slit its throat and you would be covered with between 30 and 40 gallons of blood. Now let me just take a, a rabbit trail here for, for just a moment. Satan can't create anything, but he loves to distort what God has created. So he can't create anything, only God can. But Satan loves to distort uh, that which God has created and even imitate God. He loves to imitate God so that he can pretend to be God. He's jealous of God, so he pretends to be God. He tries to imitate God, and he tries to mess up that which God has created. He's jealous, and that's why jealousy is behind so many of the things that we struggle with. So we, I mean, just analyzing my own life, so many things I think about are, are come out of jealousy. Those things that I do or I say emerge out of a heart of, of jealousy. And, and Satan is kind of the author of, of jealousy. You know, as a pastor, uh, whenever I, you know, over the last uh, 42, 43 years, whenever I'm in a situation, I just wonder, you know, why is there so much energy or heat uh, behind something that's going on? Um, where did this criticism come from? Where did this negativity come from? Or, or where is this, why is this criticism so harsh? Where's the energy, the heat behind that? Why is this negativity so strong? Uh, through the years, I will look for jealousy and, and say, okay, who's jealous of who here? And I will often find it. I'm telling you, 70, 80% of the time, it's the answer to the question, why is somebody so strong on this particular thing? Uh, uh, this criticism, it might seem like a silly criticism, a, a minor thing. Where did that come from? Uh, where's that negativity coming from? And, and why, is it, why is it so intense? Well, it's because jealousy is like the universal motive uh, for so many other things. Uh, I don't think it's a surprise that the last of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not be envious. Thou shalt not be jealous. And Solomon said that jealousy is the universal motive. He said in Ecclesiastes 4, chapter 4, verse 4, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. So we've got to examine our own hearts. I need to examine my heart. 
What comes out of jealousy? And many times it's the answer to the question, why is there so much tension in this particular relationship? Where's this criticism coming from? Uh, we often have a jealousy problem. And Satan has a jealousy problem. Satan has the biggest jealousy problem. And you can see it in the ways he tries to imitate what God does. He, he likes to pretend he's a pretend God. He likes to pretend to be God. Let me give you some examples from what we were just talking about, this initiation rite of being poured with this blood of, of, of the bull over the person as they walk through that tunnel. Uh, back then, they called this initiation into the cult of Kibbeh. They called it being washed in the blood. Being washed in the blood. Does that sound familiar? Now, if you were too poor to afford a bull, you would often do it with a lamb because you couldn't afford a bull. And so they would call it back then being washed in the blood of the lamb. Does that sound familiar? And some writers back then would even refer to it as being born again. Now, uh, here's where it really gets messy. And, and throughout the rest of this message, I think you're going to see some uh, possible parallels to our culture today. And, and many people believe that we are kind of getting back to the, the kind of culture that existed with the early church. We're, doing, we're getting back to it in, in our country. We're kind of reverting back to Greco-Roman culture and to, and to what was going on with the various satanic cults that were available to people back then, that consumed people back then. And, and in many ways, what we see, how we see the early church handling these situations is even more and more as time goes on in our country, a guide to us as to how we are to stand firm in the midst of the culture uh, today. Um, men would want to show their devotion to Kibbalah. And they wanted to be like Kibbalah, uh, who was a female god. And so they wanted to, be, to become uh, more like Kibbalah, who was a woman, so they would be challenged to, I'm going to use euphemisms here uh, to keep this sermon uh, at least PG-13, if not PG, so they would be challenged to get rid of everything that makes you a man. Historians tell about the initiation into the satanic uh, Kibbalah cult. Uh, they would give you a white robe, and you would flog and beat yourself until your white robe was covered with your own blood, and, 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 and you whip yourself until the blood seeped through this robe that you had on. Uh, here's a picture of the main street in Ephesus. Uh, one historian tells us about an occasion where four to 5,000 men marched down this street, flogging themselves with their white robes until their white robes were soaked with their own blood. And then at the end of the procession, they would emasculate themselves and place their manhood on the altar as an act of worship to Kibbalah. And there was tremendous pressure on Christ followers to conform to this surrounding culture. Um, there was also a Kibbalah cult in Sardis, which was a few miles north of Ephesus. So here's Ephesus, and a, a bit to, I guess that would be the northeast is, is, is Sardis. Uh, 
And there was a Kibble occult there as well. And so Jesus writes to the people in Sardis. He says in chapter 3, verse uh, 4 of Revelation, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. In the initiation rites to Kibbola, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the, the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Now, Kibbola from the east now meets the goddess of the west. Uh, they, they meet there in uh, these two cultures clash together in Ephesus. Diana, or uh, Artemis, uh, becomes Artemis and morphs into Artemis as these two collide. In Greek mythology, Diana was the hunter, and she's pictured with a bow and surrounded by small animals. Now, in Ephesus, Big Mama, Kibola from the east, meets Diana, the hunter from the west, and the result is Artemis, who is called the many-breasted one. Artemis becomes the, Ephesus becomes the center of Artemis worship. The Ephesus temple to Artemis becomes one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, covering 70,000 acres. Humongous. Uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, covering 70,000 acres. What does it look like today? This is what remains today of those 70,000 acres of one of the wonders of the ancient world. Every spring, Ephesus would host a festival where one million people would gather to worship Artemis. Uh, the people of Ephesus believed that everything good came from Artemis. Every good thing in life came from Artemis. For example, Ephesus was the banking center for Asia Minor. And they say, why are we so rich? Why are we the financial center? It's all because of, of Artemis. And so in that culture, to that culture, to people living in that culture, Paul writes the first three verses of Ephesians chapter one. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to, not Kibbeleth, not Diana, not Artemis. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Not Kibbeleth, not Diana, not Artemis, but God in his, with his son, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, uh, we don't have, obviously, pictures because they didn't have photography at that time. Uh, but Paul was written about by his contemporaries. And Paul was described by people of that time as bow-legged, short. He had a unibrow. He was bald, as were most godly men then and now. Just kidding. Had a hook-nosed with a cackling laugh. He was not impressive. Maybe even negatively made an impression, but the wrong kind of physical impression. Bow-legged, short, unibrow, 
bald, hook-nosed, with a cackling laugh. He marches into town, and he basically says, your Artemis is a fraud. Your culture and your city is built on a lie. And this, of course, would cause problems. And we read about the problems they caused in Acts chapter 19, uh, starting in verse uh, 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Uh, followers of Christ, Christianity was called the way at the beginning. It's one of the names it was given. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see it here, how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. It seated uh, 25,000 people. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Sounds like a typical riot, doesn't it? Uh, some of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so Paul came in and turned their world upside down. The gospel of Jesus Christ turned their world upside down. Now between Malachi and Matthew, uh, Alexander the Great, by the age of 33, had conquered the world from Greece to India and spread Greek culture the whole way. Now Hellenism is a devotion to or imitation of ancient Greek thought, customs, or style. And Alexander the Great spread uh, Hellenism uh, throughout a large part of the world. Now Greek culture, Hellenism, it glorified uh, human work, architecture, and they glorified the naked human body. Everything in Hellenism was about how smart you are, how uh, muscular you are, how, how thin you are, how powerful you are, how athletic you are, striving to be the best. Glory won by achievement was the straightest path to heaven. Humanism was their highest uh, religion. Wherever they went, 
they would first of all build in a new city a gymnasium. Gymnasium literally means a place to exercise either naked or with a loincloth. So when your friend says you want to go to the gymnasium, just be a little bit cautious when, when they say that. <laughs> I have to admit, where Kimberly, when Kimberly and I work out at, at, at places, um, you know, people, they work out today almost naked. Maybe we're getting back to this once again, but there I go sounding like an old man uh, again. The gym was not just about your physical well-being. It was holistic, mind, body, and spirit. They would burn incense to the gods before you worked out, and then they would spend their time toning your body. There would be classrooms where you would study Greek poetry and Greek plays. You would send your child to the gymnasium not just to work out, but to get a Greek worldview. It was all about the gymnasium was all about getting a Greek worldview. And, and if you're Jewish, here your 13-year-old Jewish boy, they've got all of his friends are going to the cool gymnasium where the cool kids hang out, where the cool things, cool kids did cool things. And there your 13-year-old Jewish boy is at home memorizing Leviticus. And there'd be tremendous pressure to conform. Uh, they competed in sports naked. And there's quite a bit of evidence from this time period of what they called circumcision reversals, where they just couldn't take being different anymore. And they would want a reversal so they too could compete naked in the, in the Greek games, so that uh, Jewish young people could compete in the Greek games. Your value came from how close to perfect you could become by your own effort and achievement. Now, how would that affect your view of the sanctity of human life? If it's all about striving towards perfection, how would that affect your view of the sanctity of human life? There was a law among the Greeks in Hellenism, and it went like this. Let there be a law that no deformed child be allowed to live. Let there be a law that no deformed child would be allowed to live. Plato, considered one of the most enlightened people uh, of that time, enlightened in quotes, he said a deformed child should be taken to the wilderness to die. Plutarch, another of the great enlightened one, the elites, the intellectuals, said, let the elders examine the child and allow it to die if it is not perfect. Allow it to die if it is not perfect. He believed that a life which got off to a bad start was a disadvantage to society. A life that got off to a bad start was a disadvantage to society. There was a book at that time about how to know whether or not to let your child live or not. So in Ephesus, any child that was imperfect would be taken up to a hill overlooking the city, that overlooked the city, and it would be abandoned to die. Hellenism was alive and well in Ephesus. And Hellenism is alive and well today. Here is the uh, hill 
overlooking the city of Ephesus where we believe that imperfect people were abandoned. And in the city of Ephesus, a little group of those who follow Jesus, crushed by the Hellenism in the culture around them, little group gathers together in someone's home. Some of them were holding children that had been abandoned on the hill. They had hiked up the hill to rescue those children and had taken them uh, into their family as their own. Uh, why did they do this? Because their Lord and Savior said, suffer the little children to come unto me. And the leader of those, that little group of Christ followers in this city of Artemis worshipers, uh, the city of the Hellenism culture, the Hellenistic culture, the leader of those Christ followers begins to read out loud, begins to read out loud these words to that little band of Christ followers. For he chose, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise, to the praise of his glory. These are not the words of Kibbeleh or Diana or Artemis. These are the words of the God who hikes up the hill and gathers up imperfect children into his arms and takes them into his family and adopts them as his sons and daughters and sees them as blameless without defect. You and I live in a culture that reminds us constantly that we don't measure up. But when we say yes to Jesus, and wherever you are right now watching this or listening to this, you simply say yes to Jesus. 
Jesus, I'm sorry for the sin in my life. Yes, I am imperfect, but thank you that by your death on the cross, you can forgive my imperfections. Please be my Lord and my Savior. I say, if you say yes to Jesus, he says, I choose you. I love you. I forgive you. I adopt you. And all God's family said together, amen and amen.